Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you for your prayers. While Barb and I were gone, we um, made a trip to Ireland and to England and had a wonderful time uh, with uh, family and also having an opportunity to see the countryside. We have a special part of our congregation um, who tunes in every Sunday faithfully from Northern Ireland, uh, and that's uh, Cousin Winnie. And Cousin Winnie, welcome. Uh, I know it's about uh, eight hours ahead of us uh, there, but uh, we are delighted uh, to have you as a part of the North Sound family. While we were there, Winnie uh, put together a gathering of extended family by great, great, great-grandfather Archibald Young came to Canada from Northern Ireland in about 1830. And so the family that we have in Ireland is uh, cousins, as it were, with quotation marks around it, um, going back to, uh, to the Young family. And uh, we had a wonderful time. Thank you, Winnie, for putting all of that together. Barb and I headed on then to, uh, to England uh, and had some more time with some family there, uh, as well as an opportunity to, uh, to see some things, among them um, the Triumph Motorcycle Factory. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, am uh, blessed to have such a wonderful team. Casey, thank you for caring for things so well last Sunday uh, while I was gone and heard great things about the worship night. If you weren't here, you missed it last week. And, but we'll have another one maybe once a quarter or so, Casey. And uh, my thanks also to, um, to Chris and all of the, uh, the worship team you may have heard uh, Robin talk about the fact that uh, we're, or Casey earlier, that we're a little bit short today. I'm not sure what's so special about today that everybody has gone um, today. I would have thought it might have been a holiday, but um, if you're interested in helping us with some of the technical stuff, just let us know and we'll get you plugged in. Jimmy is running sound today and he is heading to Ilwaco to fish this summer. Um, so uh, we wish you the best, Jim, um, as you do that. We have a special celebration in the Crane family today, uh, and that is our oldest son, Sean, is turning, well, not is turning, has turned as of about 2 a.m. this morning, 40 years of age. So congratulations, uh, Sean, on that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, maybe his mom feels like she could be the mother of a 40-year-old, but I, I, I don't know, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm much younger than I look. Um, <laughs> so we are going to look at our passage this morning, and I have to warn you, I ran a little bit over time, but it'll only make Club Grub taste better. Um, for the fact that I, uh, that I uh, went over a little bit, and I probably will this service as well. But having jet lag and uh, woke, waking up, Barb and I both about 4 o'clock this morning, finally got up, went to work at 4.30, because um, there's lots to do um, catching up from, uh, from the trip. Um, but it reminds me of the preacher who dreamt he was preaching and woke up and discovered he was. So hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully that won't, be, that won't be what happens today. So 
Dennis read for us the passage that we're going to be looking at, and I'm not going to, uh, to reread all of it with you. But I'm going to <clears throat> focus on one verse, and the first 10 verses can be so easily summarized, and so I'm going to give you a really quick summary of the first 10 verses, and then we're going to unpack the verse 11 together. By the way, I heard Finney did a great job last week as well, so Finney's probably watching at home. They have a sick a family or family members who are sick. That sounds much better than a sick family. Uh, Family members who are not well, um, and so hopefully you all will be better soon, Finney. So here's the quick summary in four points um, of the first 10 verses. Number one, the Lord is coming back like a thief in the night. In other words, no one knows when he's coming back, and it will be unexpected. Okay, pretty straightforward. Secondly, while those who are in darkness, who don't know Jesus, should be afraid, followers of Jesus have nothing to fear. You've probably heard me explain before about um, how I don't quite understand the passage in that, um, not so much the passage as the childhood that Barb and I grew up in where the preachers felt that even though you were believers as kids, they still had to scare literally scare the hell out of you. Um, and so, and so um, you know, they, would, they were into prophecy a lot. And you may have noticed at North Sound Church that I do not talk much about prophecy, not in terms of prophetic words relative to the New Testament and larger prophetic words about the future because knowing that Christ is coming back and the hope that we have is so important for our lives today. If you understand that to be prophetic, that's great. But I kind of gave up a long time ago trying to figure out the prophetic way everything's going to happen. I have a book on my shelf, and uh, in the book on my shelf, it has a picture of Anwar Sadat. Anybody remember Anwar Sadat? Anwar Sadat, and he's on an Egyptian frigate, a ship, Egyptian Navy, and the hull number of the ship is 666. And in the mind of this author, published a book, there's a good indication Sadat is the Antichrist. And if we were to go through history, there's a very long list of who the Antichrist may be. And so rather than try to, you know, sort of figure all that out and be wrong, um, I think that prophecy is really important, but it's important for us to understand it in some of the most basic ways, which is Jesus is coming back, and uh, we want to be ready for that, but we also don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear, number three, because we're in the light, not in the darkness, and faith and love and the hope of salvation and the gifts are ours that we have received. And finally, the fourth thing is that we should be sober in the realization that God has saved us from his wrath and called us to live our lives in relationship with him. Now, let's take a vote. We, we just went over 10 verses, and uh, it's 1035. We could quit now and go for Club Grub, or you get the rest of the sermon. How many want to quit now? Okay. Thank you. You, you can go... <laughs> The rest of us are going to continue, Don. Um, Thank you for that vote of confidence. Um, If I fall asleep, though, um, just quietly um, head uh, head on out. So this morning we're going to focus on verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
So Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica to say that the Lord is coming back and we need to live in right relationship with God and we need to live in right relationship with other people. And importantly, building one another up means we need to be in Christian community. It just doesn't work for us to try to be Christians on our own. And our culture has been a culture of individualism. The American spirit from the frontier spirit early on, but especially in recent years, the idea of living our lives and nobody telling us what to do and being uh, self uh, sustaining, self-supporting, self-guided individuals, that's sort of been the American way, but it's not the biblical way. The biblical way is we're in this together. We need each other. And the challenge that we, we have is that we, we culturally just don't seem to understand that. I know, however, I'm preaching to the choir because here you all are in community on a Sunday morning. So thank you for, thank you for being here and being part of the family. Some time ago, I was getting ready for a trip uh, as a uh, naval officer to Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, some of you may know that that's not a seaport city, but in fact is a big army base. And uh, so we had a Navy meeting at an army base. And before we went, um, I was getting my uniform ready, and I hadn't worn my jacket for a long time. And I... Um, on the jacket, you have eagles. I was a, my rank was captain, and uh, if you if you um, you put your eagles on your uniform, they have to be pointing in the right direction. And I could not, for the life of me, because it had been a while, I guess I could not remember for the life of me which way the beak pointed. Now I know that if you're not a military person, it's like, well, who cares? But if you're if you're a military person, you got to get it right. The first thing you learn is you got to get your uniform right. So um, so I set the eagles aside um, so that I could go down to the computer and just verify on another captain's uniform what they were supposed to look like. And uh, unfortunately, I forgot. And I forgot to pack the eagles. And when I got to Columbia. Um, I, I, my, my full uniform wasn't ready. And um, did I tell you that all three chaplain corps admirals were going to be at this meeting? And the guest speaker was Lieutenant General Boomer uh, Milstead, who was the uh, deputy commandant of the Marine Corps. And there I came, not being ready in uniform. Now, I have to admit that this story that I'm telling you is something of a parable I have realized of my own life. And that is, I can get so preoccupied with the stuff of my life, my, my head down into the details of what I'm dealing with at the moment, that I sometimes forget the big stuff like why I'm here and, and what this whole thing is all about anyway. Shortly on the heels of that, however, I had two wake-up calls. And the wake-up calls were helpful and encouraging to me. The first wake-up call happened, it's got to be more than 10 years ago now. And we had a meeting up near Highway 99, and a leader in the church at that time, they've since uh, moved up to Bellingham, but leader in the church at that time had bought a Audi TT. And I'm a car guy. This is an Audi TT about that vintage. And uh, I'm a car guy, and he invited me to drive back to Edmonds with him. And so I took advantage of the opportunity as a car guy. And uh, it was 
it was beautiful. The leather upholstery, the stitching, the, the electronics, even back then, were sort of hidden behind a panel. Um, a V6 engine in a little car like that, it didn't want for power, uh, for speed. Um, and I was just really impressed. But here's the thing that I learned in the process, and that was, as we talked about it, this gentleman talked to me about wanting this car for so long and finally purchasing it. And he said, you know, he said, I've wanted this car a long time and I've really enjoyed it, but it just isn't that important to me. I, I took note of that. Story number two, one Wednesday morning after the prayer meeting, this was back in a similar season, uh, there's a knock on my office door. So Wednesday mornings from 7 to 7.30, we have a prayer meeting. You can either come to the prayer meeting live and in person at uh, North Sound Church in the, in the little white church, or you can join us online, and you just have to let us know, and we'll send you a link to be a part of the, the prayer meeting. And uh, Spencer is uh, faithfully uh, helping us uh, coordinate that. You can either talk to him or Jan in the church office, and we'll get you connected. So after the prayer meeting, 7.30 in the morning, I went to my office to start the workday, and a knock came on the door, and there was a gentleman there who had been in the prayer meeting, and he wanted to talk, and he was going to be speaking at an event that was coming up, and because I get paid to talk all the time, Bob, uh, I decided that he decided that maybe I could offer some insight. So we chatted about that, but then he kind of switched gears and got a little more personal. And this was kind of in the, the aftermath of 2008 and the economy and the recession that happened at that time. And he talked to me about the fact that unless something changed radically, he was going to go under financially. Now, he was a wealthy man who had accumulated a lot of assets. He had a lot of property, um, homes, condos, things like that. But the way the economy had gone at that time, it wasn't looking good for him. But he said something, again, that was powerful, that was a wake-up call for me. He quoted C.S. Lewis, which, of course, I picked up my ears, having heard the name C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis's famous quotation where he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pain. And in the midst of this trying period in his life where he could lose everything, he said these words. He said, if I had to choose between things going well and not being close to God and things going badly and being close to God, I would choose the pain. What these two men have in common is this, and that is that in both cases, having amassed some significant wealth in their lives and gone through the experiences of life, they both came to discover that what they have is not the most important thing. I have to say, there was a point in this trip, and I can't remember where it was, Barb, what we were, um, it was a particularly nice moment, and I think maybe it was a meal that we had somewhere that was just, just wonderful. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, wow, that was amazing. We had a moment like that, and I think I spoke up at that time. 
I don't know who said this originally, but I say it from time to time, and that is the expression, I've been rich and I've been poor, rich is better. <laughs> if, uh, if you know what I mean, um, if you're honest, you know what I mean. It's like some of those wonderful moments. So the issue here is not talking about our relative wealth and enjoying life, but the point is where our heart is. And the two individuals that I spoke of moved beyond the preoccupation with this life and stuff to engage with their purpose. They both had concluded that the purpose of their lives was not lived out in one hour on Sunday morning and then back to life as usual, but that their purpose is something that's 24-7, and it's a 24-7 proposition that amends everything of their lives. In a very real way, this is back to the future. I, I know I often talk about the first three centuries of the church, and I think as long as I'm the senior pastor here, you're going to keep hearing about that because I feel like the way our culture is going, we're increasingly going back to that time frame. That time frame being where we're going to find ourselves as Christians, not as a majority Christian nation, but in fact as a minority. When you look at the trends that we have within our culture, you can see um, what I mean. The there was this conflict in the, in the early church. It's Like I say, it's back to the future in the early church between the Roman worldview and the Christian worldview. I was reading a, a book about this context, about this time, and there was a chapter, a very interesting chapter on women and children. And it was contrasting the Roman view of women and children and the Christian view of women and children. And the Roman view was that women and children were the property of the male in their lives. So when they were younger, they were the property of their father. And then when they were, um, were married, they were the property of their husband. And there was a shortage of women in the culture because male children were valued, female children were not. They were often either taken to the garbage dump or set out in, a, uh, in exposure to the, to, the, to the animals, to the wildlife. Abortion took place uh, in a significant way at that time, especially infanticide. Caesar, one of the Caesars, I don't remember which one, impregnated his niece and then demanded she have an abortion, and she died from the abortion that took place. You can imagine in that time frame, without sterile technique, without understanding the nature of how germs and infection is passed on, the, the dangers. Um, there were mechanical means of abortion that were horrible that we won't go into. Women were given poison, and they were... They, they, they didn't know how to titrate the poison. The idea was to poison them enough for the child to die, to have a miscarriage, but not kill the woman. But because they didn't understand the right levels, a woman often died in the process. Now, into that world came followers of Jesus Christ. And in distinction from Roman culture, women and children were honored by the early church. The children that were left out to be exposed to the elements were adopted. They were picked up and adopted into Christian families. There were more women than men within Christian circles, just the opposite of the Roman world. 
And uh, women then, because there were more women than men, often married pagan Roman husbands who then came to faith. And so from a population perspective, they also had more children than the Romans, somewhat like the challenge that European countries, Japan, are having now with not having a, a population rate that is going to replace the adults. So what does this have to do with our situation today? Well, the point I want to make is that our culture, our society is becoming increasingly like the Romans going in the wrong direction. We also face the threat of decline that they did. We're, we're threatened by a lack of spiritual reign in our nation. And that lack of spiritual reign dries up the reservoirs of the church and makes us infertile and impotent. Think about our culture, thousands of chemically dependent children. An opioid crisis. I talked to family in our church, to Larry uh, and Hen about the death of their son who died of an accidental opioid overdose um, j- just at 31 years of age just a, about a month ago. And, uh, and, and this t- year to date, something like 300, we've had something like 300 deaths uh, in the Seattle area over the misuse of opioids. We have in our nation the cult of violence and obscenity that extends its tentacles that leaves few untouched. One study suggests that 71% of the population, or 170 million people, are either uh, unchurched, not Christians, or Christians in name only. There are only five nations in the world that, are, that have a population of 170,000. And so the focus of our missionary work is not just what we do in India, but it's right here and what takes place in our nation and this dramatically changing world in which we live. We took as our mission statement for the church and the strategy that we use something from the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission says make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. When you put those together, you come up with the North Sound Circle, which says that we need to connect with people We need to grow together as the family of God. We need to share our faith. We need to serve in our community. And that is, all of that is centered in the idea of worship and being empowered by God for what it is that we are called to do. So what does it look like for us to live this out in the 21st century? It means for us, I think, friends, that we need to be a church that looks much more like a hospital than a fortress. We need to build each other up. We don't engage in mutual navel-gazing, but we look outside ourselves. Let's consider our text one more time. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So... I have a few points, and I'm going to go through them quickly as we move towards a conclusion this morning. What do we do in church, or or what does church look like in the 21st century? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that church must be authentic. Jesus had some interesting things to say about being authentic. 
You know, we take oaths, we still take oaths today, where you go to court and you swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, don't, don't swear, now, no, don't take oaths. Now, we don't, we don't apply that literally to going to court, as, as some do, but his point is to say that your reputation should be such as a follower of Jesus that you never have to take an oath. From the message version, and don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it, or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you want to manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. There was a time in world missions when we unfortunately didn't just convey the good news of Jesus Christ within the context of the culture in which we served, but we also had a tendency to convey British or American culture along with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of the story of the African tribe where the missionary tried to get them to put clothing on, but within their culture, the only ones that wore clothes were prostitutes. There was a complete lack of understanding of the culture in which they served. In America, those who are searching for meaning in their lives need more than a smile from Christians. They need to find real people, not perfect people, but real authentic people. Our missing friends see through charades in our lives fairly quickly. We're all in a process of growth and friends for all of us. It's often three steps forward and two steps back. The second thing I want to suggest is the church must be contextual. Verse, uh, in verses, uh, beginning in verse 22 of Acts 17, Paul begins his dialogue with the philosophers in Athens. We read it this way. He says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. What we need to do is not begin with our message and our truth, but we need to begin where people are. When we plant churches in India, we want to understand the context of the Indian people, not the North American or the, the British or European context, but the context of Indian people. We want to understand their culture. We want to communicate in ways that would not be offensive we do not want to confuse American culture with the communication of the good news. We want to share the gospel in a way that Indian people can identify with. We would want points of departure that are common to us for dialogue and understanding about our shared humanity and about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we have to do with our own culture. We need to see our culture that way and we need to live into it because in most of our lifetimes it has changed so dramatically from what it was. We want to show our friends, our missing friends who should be here with us, the absolute beauty of a Christian worldview.
we want to show them the power, the transforming power of a Christian life. The third thing I want to suggest is that the church must be relational. Years ago, the uh, Billy Graham Crusades used to have something called Operation Andrew. If you can believe it, the first service had a really strong attendance this morning, and I asked how many people have heard of Operation Andrew, and nobody raised their hands. I'm going to see if this, this group is any better. Does anybody remember with the Billy Graham Crusade, Operation Andrew? Thank you. I see those hands. <laughs> feel like Billy Graham. Yes, I see that hand. Um, so, so Operation Andrew was really cool. By the way, in London, we had, um, we had dinner with um, my cousin, who's a member of parliament, and Barry shared with us that he made a Christian commitment at the Billy Graham Crusade in London in the 1950s. And uh, he said he actually got saved twice because he went down for himself and then he came back up and uh, somebody, a friend that he was with, wanted him to go with him to go back down. And so he did it again. Uh, but the Operation Andrew was based on the scripture in John where Andrew went to get his brother Peter. And Operation Andrew was where we would write down the names of 10 people that we were in relationship with who weren't walking with Jesus that we would pray for and then extend an invitation to come to the Billy Graham crusade. Most often, people come to Christ and his church out of a relationship. In The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, formerly of the University of Washington, talks about the Roman world being one to Christ through relationship, neighbors, friends, work associates, we take a long view and we develop genuine relationships. It's important that in our relationships with people, it's not about bait and switch. Our relationships need to be authentic. And if someone chooses not to follow Christ, we continue to be engaged in relationship with them. Um, we don't have notches on our belt for those friends that when they come to Christ, we disassociate with them. Or if they choose not to, we disassociate. We continue in relationship. So my question for us this morning individually is, do we, do I, do you have meaningful ongoing relationships with those who have not chosen to follow Jesus? Because we should. Another question, can you name one or more people in your life who are not followers of Jesus that you are involved in loving, caring, encouraging, helping, and sharing as opportunity permits? Fourth, a church must be oriented to service. If you look at the North Sound Circle, you'll see that service is a vital element of who we are as a church. Sometimes in a desire to share the truth with others, we forget that it's our actions that often speak loudest. Jesus says this, again, the message version. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cup of water to someone who is thirsty. For instance, the smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. At North Sound, we believe that one of the most important ways we engage in a culture that is not a Christian culture anymore is to serve them. And we do it in a variety of ways. We do it financially. 
We give to community organizations that are working for the common good, that are alleviating human need, but we also do it through you. We love it when you volunteer to serve. We're short-staffed today uh, for the, as we move into the summer. We'd love you to volunteer to help at church, but we also encourage you to engage in the community. Last time we checked, you were involved in 105 different community organizations, which was amazing. Continue to do that. Continue to serve as followers of Jesus. As we serve our community, we have an opportunity to share the good news. And then, number six, the, the church must be spirit-empowered. The coming of the Holy Spirit was foretold by Jesus in Acts 1.8 when he said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. We're confronted here by a group of ordinary people. I think this is fascinating. So Jesus, when we look at where this is at, last Sunday, by the way, two Sundays ago was Pentecost, wasn't it, Casey? So two Sundays ago... Um, we celebrated Pentecost, but prior to Pentecost, Jesus went to the cross. Well, he showed us how to live. He died. He rose again. And then on Pentecost, 50 days later, um, the Holy Spirit was poured out. But before Pentecost happened, Jesus went to be with the Father, but he predicted this. So his ministry after, after 33 years of age, but three years of ministry, was down to 120 people. Okay. And with 120 people, they, went, they were in a room, they were in a prayer meeting. 120 people in a prayer meeting was kind of what was left of Jesus' ministry. And what was interesting to me is at the end of Acts chapter 1, instead of them um, just relying upon prayer to select a replacement for Matthias, do you remember what they did? They cast lots. They, they sort of gambled. You know, it was like throwing dice. Um, it was like, boy, that's weird. But then the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, and we see that they were tra absolutely transformed. And in the transformation and empowering the Holy Spirit, that day they went from 120 to 3,120 as people heard the good news of Jesus Christ and responded. So while Americans should use their right to, to vote, and uh, to work for morality and righteousness, it's important to understand that our purpose as followers of Jesus Christ is not primarily political. Our strength is in the message of truth with the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to change lives. And as, changed, as lives are changed, politics is changed. The country is changed as people turn to Jesus. Ephesians 5.18 is a verse that I love. It says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And this verse is in the present tense in the Greek, which means keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's in the passive voice. The passive voice means you don't do the filling. The Holy Spirit does the filling. You just allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. And it's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. So basically, the literal translation is continually allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. That's the kind of lives that we are called upon to live. 
On Thursday afternoon, Barb and I had arrived in London this week, and uh, she wanted to go see a garden. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And uh, I wanted to go to the RAF Museum, the Royal Air Force Museum in London, and so we kind of went different directions. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity because my uncle, Uncle Bev, my dad's brother, was uh, was killed flying with the RAF uh, in, uh, in World War II. In the fall of 1940, it was one of the darkest moments for Britain during World War II. The German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was mounting increasing attacks on London and elsewhere in Britain. They flattened Coventry, which right is right near where the Triumph Motorcycle Factory is now. And as these missions of the Luftwaffe bombing missions began to mount, Reese Howells is a name that some of you may be familiar with. He was a great prayer warrior. He went to prayer, and others went to prayer as well, and they turned to intercession for the Battle of Britain. The situation was at its worst on September 15th. Winston Churchill, the prime minister, was in the operations room of the RAF. And you get a picture of it here. They, they had an amazing strategy that they developed to deal with the threat of the Luftwaffe. They had radar on the coastal areas, and they had radio phones, and they would radio in to the RAF headquarters. And then the young women that you see around the table, based upon what was said, they could see where the Luftwaffe was coming in and where they needed to send up British fighters to take them on. Winston Churchill was in the room on September 15th when we saw the Luft, they saw the Luftwaffe coming in, they saw the British fighters going up, and at one point he said to the Air Force commander, he said, how many reserves do we have? How many reserve squadrons do we have? And the response was, we have none. Five minutes passed, and then there was movement on the board east of where the Luftwaffe was as the Luftwaffe aircraft began to turn and head back towards their bases. The Air Marshal, who was the commander-in-chief of Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain, describes the spiritual factor. He said... Even during the battle, one realized from day to day how much external support was coming in. At the end of the battle, one had the sort of feeling that there had been some special divine intervention to alter some sequence of events which would otherwise have occurred. I want to conclude uh, this morning with one more story and we'll be done a number of years ago, I caught an interview with the late Tim Russert. Tim, some of you may remember, was the anchor of Meet the Press. And he was on C-SPAN talking about a book that he had written called Wisdom of Our Fathers. And in the book, Wisdom of Our Fathers, he was talking about uh, different people and what we had learned through their experience. And he told the, the story of one Celeste Ulrich, who was a retired professor in Eugene, Oregon. And I close with her story this morning, the story of her father. She says, from everything I could see, my father was a racist. He spoke in derogatory terms about the black men who worked for him. 
A lazy crop of humans, he said, spending their pay on booze and leaving their women to care for those children. Conditioned by my Girl Scout education, I was acutely sensitive to the plight of black people. I would rail at my father's generalizations and his inhumane assumptions, but I got nowhere. I was ashamed of him and took great pains to make sure none of my friends ever engaged him in conversation about race. Once when I tried to talk to him, Dad said, when you've seen as much of the world as I have, you'll realize that people are not as good as your Pollyannish spirit believes. When I countered that there were plenty of no-count whites, Dad suggested, Dad shrugged and said, someday maybe you'll understand. I continued to regard my father, who was normally so compassionate and understanding about other people's problems, as a bigot, and he indulged me as a bleeding heart. At the age of 65, Dad died unexpectedly of a heart attack. As was the custom in Baltimore, there was a viewing of the deceased before the funeral, where the family was expected to escort the mourners to have one last look. I hated the process, but as a dutiful daughter, I escorted various friends and relatives, all of them white with the exception of our black laundry lady who told me that Dad had always thanked her for the way she ironed his shirts. Like a queen, he made me feel, she sobbed. Then as the last of the visitors hurried in, I was sought out by a gigantic black man. You must be the daughter, he said. As he clasped my hand, I'd be most appreciative if you would walk up with me to view your daddy one last time. His strong grip left me no choice, she said. I'm not sure I know you, Mr. No, ma'am, he whispered. I'm the dispatcher at the company. Just call me Joe. You know, if it wasn't for your daddy there, I'd be sweeping up the dispatch room and washing down walls and mopping floors. But your daddy saw something in me and helped me work my way up to be a dispatcher. He was always there for me. When my wife got sick, when my children acted up, even the time I was arrested for getting a little drunk, he was the one person I could count on. Yes, sir, Mr. Frank was the only white man who really understood what it was like to be colored. I squeezed his big black hand with unbridled compassion. Joe had given me a remarkable gift. He taught me to have faith, no matter what the outward signs may indicate. Friends, I'm reminded that God works through imperfect people. And I welcome you to a missionary church where some of us are struggling. Some of us are broken. Some of us are beat up. Some of us are doing pretty good in this particular moment. But all of us are inconsistent and imperfect. Yet we're joining together in God's work of redeeming the world through us and joining together with those who are naive enough, like the early Christians, to believe that we can change the world. And so, friends, welcome to the team. Welcome to the family. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remove ourselves from the, the cares of the moment to look at you, 
and to look at the great calling you've given us and the family that you have given us in which to fulfill that calling. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.